Our first scripture reading is taken from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verse 1 to 14. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley. They were very dry. He said to me, Malta, can these bones live? I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded. And as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophecy to the breath, prophecy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Then he said to me, Mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore, prophecy, I say to them, thus says the Lord God, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, all my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, all my people, I will put in my spirit within you, and you shall live, and place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and will act the Lord. The Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Our second reading is taken from the book of John, chapter 11. accompanied by several verses from this chapter. He reads us, 
Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister, Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill, so the sister sent a message to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. After saying this, he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death. They thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for days. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept the man from dying. Then Jesus again greatly disturbed into the tomb. It was a cave and the stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you will see the glory of God? When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in the cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The Lord bless the reading of his word. Over the last few weeks, this congregation has had a, a bit of a run of services to give thanks for the life of friends who have died. These have been good occasions appropriately sad but with time to remember and to retell the good things about those who are no longer with us. We have had laughter as well as tears and rightly so 
because a life well lived is worth celebrating even as we mourn its passing. But our engagement with the mystery of death has also reminded us that there are no easy answers and there are no quick solutions. As C.S. Lewis memorably put it, the death of a loved one is an amputation. And although time can bring some healing, the loss remains forever a part of us. Well, our two lectionary readings for this morning invite us to face the reality of our own human mortality. So let's start with the Old Testament, the reading from the Hebrew Bible. And this week we find ourselves with the prophet Ezekiel. We have been in our morning services concentrating on a string of readings from different prophets of the time leading up to and then into the story of the Jewish exile. And Ezekiel, whose vision of the Valley of Dry Bones we heard this morning, was a contemporary of Jeremiah, who we heard from last week. But whereas Jeremiah had remained behind in Jerusalem, and was writing to the Jewish exiles in Babylon, in telling them to seek the welfare of the city to which they had been called, Ezekiel was one of those exiles. He was one of those whom the Babylonians had displaced from Jerusalem to Babylon. And his job was to interpret God's word for those people in Babylon who felt that they had lost everything. Many of them would, I am sure, have been personally bereaved. They would have lost family and friends during the time of the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. But their grief and loss was more than personal. It was also structural because they had lost their city. They'd lost their society. They'd lost their homes and they'd lost their dreams for their futures. And so in Ezekiel's vision, we are confronted with this horrific scene. It is the aftermath of a war. And the vision that Ezekiel speaks of is a vision of the site of a battlefield. Ezekiel sees an open mass grave with the bones of so many bodies lying intermingled and bleached by the sun, stripped clean by the carrion. And it's hard to read this passage without thinking of the killing fields of more recent years. From the war graves of Flanders and the Somme, to the European death camps of the mid-20th century, to the massacres of Bosnia and South Sudan, to more recent stories of executions in Afghanistan. Mass death and mass burial remain a tragic and traumatic part of the human story. So many lives lost, so many hopes and dreams cut short. A few years ago, Liz and I visited Southeast Asia and we went to Cambodia. We went to one of the killing field sites just outside Phnom Penh. And as we walked around, we could see scraps of clothing and fragments of bone eroding out of the dry soil that we were walking on, testimony to the shallow mass graves of the victims of the Khmer Rouge. A valley of dry bones is both the literal reality 
of so much of human history, the aftermath of a battle or a massacre. But it is also a fitting metaphor for the people who have suffered at the hands of others. And as Ezekiel wanders in his vision around this particular valley of dry bones, it speaks to him of his people taken from their homeland into exile in Babylon, the victims of an ethnic cleansing from which it seemed there was no way back. For Ezekiel, death had come not just to a person, but to a whole nation. In a terrifying precursor to the Holocaust, the dry bones of Ezekiel's vision are the bones of his fellow Jews, broken and cast aside by a nationalistic ideology of another nation state. And in the midst of this devastation, Ezekiel hears the voice of the Lord asking him a question. Mortal, can these bones live? Mortal, can these bones live? And in this question, we're taken to the central question of human mortality. Is death the end? Does death get the final word on life? These same questions echo through the story of the death of Lazarus. As we encounter Jesus living the personalized agony of the death of his dearly beloved friend. And the questions are the same. Is death the end? Does get death get the final word on life, mortal? Can these bones live? The story of Lazarus is a long one. We only read some uh, excerpts from it this morning. Uh, and it continues even beyond the end of chapter 11. Within the structure of John's gospel, the story of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Lazarus is, is what is known as one of the seven signs of the kingdom in John's gospel, which reveal to the reader the nature of the new world that is coming into being through Christ. And it's as if the author of John's gospel is inviting us as his readers to enter into the detail of the story and to spend some time with those affected by the death of Lazarus, this one man, and to share with them in their range of responses. So my way into this for us this morning is uh, I want us to spend a bit of time with some of the insights from a book which I've turned to again and again over the years. Um, it's a study called On Death and Dying, and it was published first in 1969 by a woman uh, called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a Swiss-American psychiatrist. And in this, she proposed that those faced with a diagnosis of terminal illness typically experience grief in five stages. And these five stages of grief, as they have become known, can also often be seen in the lives of those who have themselves experienced a bereavement. And although they shouldn't be thought of as a programme to work through, and people experience them in a variety of orders or don't always experience all of them, and people sometimes return to one stage again and again, Many people have found these to be a helpful guide to what they find themselves experiencing as they are brought face to face with the reality of death. 
Other models of grieving and bereavement are also available, and if you want to know more about this, do, do have a chat with me and I can signpost you to some further reading on it. But I've often thought that Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief can be seen in the various responses of the people around Lazarus in John's story of his illness and death. And I think it's worth our while spending a bit of time with them today as we enter into these two texts of grief from the books of Ezekiel and John. One of them a story of grief at a national level. One of them a very personalised story of the death of a friend. Kubler-Ross suggests that the first stage of grief is often that of denial. These are the uh, it simply can't be true feelings. This is often the immediate moment where we keep convincing ourselves or expecting that the person will just walk through the door, thinking perhaps we can still hear them speaking. The disciples do this when Jesus tells them that Lazarus has died. He breaks it to them gently using the euphemism of sleep for death. He says to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples grasp onto this with the hopeful denial of the reality. Lord, they say, well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be all right. And so Jesus has to tell them plainly, Lazarus, he says, is dead. I've often found in my experience of dealing with people who are bereaved, often the funeral visit, when you go and meet the family in the run up to preparing the funeral, the one of my jobs is to speak the truth of death plainly with the family to help people hear the reality that is often being euphemized around at that point. Kubler-Ross says, denial is usually a temporary defense and will soon be replaced by partial acceptance. But what this acceptance brings with it is often the next stage in the grieving process, which for many people is an experience of anger. Anger is an emotion that is hard to control or predict. We don't know where it will strike or in which direction. Some people become angry at the doctors that have been caring for their loved one, convincing themselves that with better care perhaps things could have had a different outcome. Some people become angry at themselves, blaming themselves for in some way letting their loved one down. Some people become angry at the person who has died, furious with them for daring to leave like this, depriving them of the future that they've been planning together. Some people become angry at God or at their friends or family, desperate for somewhere to direct the blame for the loss they've suffered. All of which can seem quite negative, as if these feelings of anger are something to be avoided, or to be ashamed of, or to feel guilty about. Which is why I find it so helpful and interesting that the character in the Lazarus story who exhibits anger is none other than Jesus himself. This is not a bad thing to do. When Jesus sees Mary and the other Jews weeping over Lazarus's death, we're told that he was greatly angered, greatly agitated. 
Some Bible translations have tried to downplay the extent of Jesus' emotional response to the death of his friend, and our own NRSV describes him as being greatly disturbed or deeply moved. But uh, perhaps a, a more accurate translation would be that Jesus kind of snorts with anger. He's furious that his friend has died. And while some may not like to think of Jesus exhibiting raw anger in the face of death, the reality of the words that John uses here to describe Jesus' emotions are more indicative of uncontrolled anger than anything else. So if you find yourself angry in grief, Jesus has been there too. And it's not just Jesus. Some of those around him are angrily looking for someone to blame. So they say loudly with accusation in their voices, could not he who opens the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Anger, it seems, is part of the human response to death. It's an appropriate and natural emotion in the face of tragic loss. The next stage of grief which Kubler-Ross talks about is that which she called bargaining. She sees this as a helpful stage in the move towards acceptance. She says, if we have been unable to face the sad facts in the first period and have been angry at people or God in the second phase, maybe we can succeed in entering into some sort of agreement. She uses the example of a teenager who's been told they can't spend the night at their friend's house. Initially, they may be angry, stamping their feet or locking themselves in their bedroom, temporarily expressing their anger towards their parents by rejecting them. But then they have second thoughts and coming out of their room, they start volunteering to do tasks they'd never normally do in the hope that if they're especially good this week, maybe they'll get what they want next week. And maybe we're not so different sometimes in the face of death. We construct deals or ultimatums and address them to God, the universe, and ourselves. If this, then that is the pattern. If only I can have another year with them, then I'll be a better person. If only the doctors could have done things differently, then they would still be with me. If only you'd been here, Jesus, then my brother would not have died so says firstly Martha and later Mary. If only, if only, if only. And the bargains and the regrets intermingle in the mind of the bereaved and we imagine a world where reality is different and we construct scenarios that might hopefully bring that world back into being. Kubler-Ross notes that most bargains are made with God and are usually kept secret. Where Martha and Mary are different is that they speak their bargaining aloud. They offer to Jesus their wish that the world was different and he receives their plea, offering them comfort and compassion as they move towards acceptance of their brother's death. I think it is okay sometimes to just say this stuff to the Lord. He gets it. It's okay. But there's another difficult stage to speak about, and that is the stage Kubler-Ross identifies as depression. For many of us, the experience of staring death in the face creates within us a void 
of emptiness that just won't go. So great can this void become that our own existence can sometimes feel like it ceases to matter in a meaningful way. And again, we can turn to scripture to find examples of this. The psalmist in the Old Testament knows this experience well. In Psalm 130, he says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Out of the depths. And we meet this uncontrollable sadness in the Lazarus story. And again, it is Jesus who embraces this aspect of his humanity most fully. In what is famously known as the shortest verse in the Bible, John tells us that Jesus began to weep. He is overcome by sorrow and sadness to the point where uncontrollable tears from a grown man is the entirely appropriate response to the death of his friend and the grief of all those who loved him. It's okay to cry. But it's not just Jesus who weeps. Mary does too, as do Lazarus's other friends. The old adage that big boys and girls don't cry is one which seems can be set aside in the face of the depression of bereavement. But eventually, says Kubler-Ross, if the grieving process continues, the depression can begin to lift and give way to the final stage, which is that of acceptance. She says that if a person has enough time, and this is not a quick process, and perhaps if a person is given some help in working through the stages, eventually you get to a point not where the loss is no longer felt, but where there is a healthy acceptance of the new reality that has come into being. And in the Lazarus story, Mary seems to be moving to this stage by the time they come to the open tomb where they've laid Lazarus. Some time has passed and she's concerned that the body will already have started to decompose. She has, to some extent at least, come to accept the reality of her brother's death and recognises the natural processes at work in a hot country in a body that has been laid into the ground. And then, and then. Up to this point, this has been a story of death much like any other. And I'm sure many of us will be able to relate our experiences directly onto this. The stages of grief are all there. The characters behave as they should, including Lazarus, whose life has ended. But then the most unexpected thing in the world happens and Jesus calls Lazarus back from the grave. The point of the story suddenly comes into focus. Is death the end? Does death get a final word on life? Or as God put it to Ezekiel, mortal, can these bones live? Well, yes. The evidence of these stories is that it seems they can. In these stories, at least, death is not the end. Death does not get the final word on life. And it's at this point that the story of the death of Lazarus stops being a carefully observed study on grief and becomes something else altogether. It becomes what John intends it to be within the gospel. It is a sign of the kingdom of God, 
It is a story that reveals something profoundly important to us about the nature of the new world that is coming into being through the person of Jesus Christ. The point of the story of the resurrection of Lazarus is that when God is involved in the story of someone's life, death is never allowed to get the final word on that story. This has been true in the story of Lazarus's death. It will be true in the story of Jesus's death. And we are invited to realize that it will be true for us also. The calling forth of Lazarus from his tomb prefigures Jesus' own dramatic resurrection, his own desertion of the grave later in the gospel story. And just as Lazarus died, so will Jesus die, and so, I am afraid to say, will each of us in our turn. Symbols of death are all around me as I speak, from the cross on the wall behind me to the bread and wine on the communion table before us. We surround ourselves in our Christian faith with symbols of death, because bodies break, blood is spilled and mortal life comes to an end. It's not always recognised these days that death is at the heart of the Christian faith. We often devote far more time to focusing on living life in all its fullness than we do on confronting the reality of death. And I'm right in there with the message of life in all its fullness. Believe me, I really am. Life is a gift and it is here to be lived for as long as we have it to the best of our ability. But we often gloss over the realities of death. And here in Advent, as we spend time with themes of longing and waiting and loss, it's the right time in the Christian year to just remember that we are also confronted with the realities of mortality. Of course, the world around us is so good at ignoring death. Death is consigned to the specialists. Society dangles the goal of eternal youth before us all. I'm told 70 is now the new 50, which as somebody who will be 50 next year gives me great heart and hope. We pursue the dream of healthy and active living into old age, we deny to ourselves the truth of our own mortality. What is it that has possessed me to enroll in a triathlon next year? Goodness knows. It will prove that I'm alive, of course. Better do some training. We deny it so often. But it was once the case, of course, before all the modern medical advances, and still is the case in other parts of the world, that death is just a regular reality for people. In the olden days, in this country, and in so many other places around the world, death occurred primarily in the home. It was not unusual to sit with the body of a family member who had died. These days, it tends to happen in hospitals. Many people have never even seen a dead body. 
And within the medical profession, death has become the great enemy to be avoided at all costs. We focus our energies on keeping people alive, even sometimes beyond the point where the best thing in the world for that person is for them to die. And I think Christianity, with its focus on death at the heart of its faith, can bring a different perspective on this, which we can offer as a prophetic witness to the world. And that perspective is this. Death is no longer the mortal enemy of humankind. Death's power over people's lives is broken because in Christ we find the hope of resurrection. In Christ we find the promise and hope of eternal life. Now, it is important here that we don't confuse eternal life with living forever. They aren't the same thing at all. Eternal life is that quality of life that endures beyond the grave. It is that which comes as a gift of God to each of us given through Jesus Christ. Living forever is simply an attempt to deny the mortality of humanity and it is ultimately always going to founder in the face of death. None of us can live forever, but all of us can receive eternal life. Even Lazarus, called forth from his tomb, would die again. And it may well be Lazarus, about whom Jesus has to scotch the rumour later in the Gospel, that this man is going to live forever. Jesus says he's not going to live forever, he'll die like everyone else. The Christian doctrine of resurrection is not, contrary to popular opinion, all about the afterlife. An eternal life cannot simply be reduced to pie in the sky when you die. Rather, Eternal life is about living the eternal value of each day, so that all that is good in life is not lost. Eternal life is eternity in each present moment. When is eternal life? Now. And now. And now, because these moments matter eternally to God and are gathered by God and held for all time. As William Blake put it, to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Eternal life is eternity in each present moment. God is love and God is eternal and at our life's conclusion all that we have ever been from young child through strong adulthood to God willing infirmity and helplessness of old age all of that is swept up in the love of God and held in God's eternal loving embrace nothing that is good in life is lost to God this is the Christian perspective on eternal life, and it is Christ's gift in the face of death. It's no coincidence that so many Christians in the medical profession find themselves involved in the palliative care and hospice movements. In Christ, we are enabled to face death without fear, because we know that death doesn't get that final word. And so back to Ezekiel's vision. 
where we hear the word of the Lord to those who have been taken hostage by the power of death. And it's a word that echoes down to our age with startling clarity. Mortal, can these bones live? Is death ultimately all that there is? Is it all lost in the face of death? Mortal, can these bones live? There's a West African proverb which says that when an elder dies, a library is burned. But I don't think that's the Christian perspective. Because nothing is lost to God. Within the love of God in Christ, nothing that is good is ever lost. Because each moment is of eternal value to the Lord of all eternity. Mortal, can these bones live? Yes, we may answer. They live eternally. Our Advent prayers begin with longing and waiting. Loving God in the season of longing and waiting, when we rekindle that hope, both of birth and resurrection, may we still take inspiration from those obedient journeyings of the wise men, the kings and the shepherds revealed in the scriptures of old at this time. For this Advent season helps us to relive the emotions of longing and waiting. And we think especially of those who have particular longings now. A longing for food, Lord, in a world where so many seem to exist in a permanent famine, where the risk of drinking water carries disease or death. May we be challenged anew, particularly by our giving, to aid those who cry out even for the most meagre of crumbs. Lord, thou who art the bread of life, grant sustenance to all those who, through no fault of their own, are deprived of the rich fruits of creation. Lord, may their needs be filled. A longing for shelter. We pray for those refugees fleeing from persecution, risking life and limb for a safer, more secure future. Many enduring an unimaginable despair. For the homeless, especially those anticipating a bleak winter on our city streets. Loving God, we have a charge to show Christian care. Help us to respond practically to these needs. A longing for peace. Lord, we see a world in turmoil and distress with scenes of persecution, violence and anger playing out continuously in the media on a daily basis. We pray that the storms of conflict might be stilled for the healing of all nations and for the gathering of a reign of peace. We ask this through the one that is the Prince of Peace. 
come, Prince of Peace, and reign. We remember too, the lonely and the unloved, especially at this time of year, who will experience the bitter pain of isolation, seemingly in a world that doesn't care. Families coping with stress, for the unemployed, for victims of abuse, for those suffering the pain of bereavement, for those in perilous or dark situations who yearn for a glimmer of light, light however flickering. Lord, be that light and shine through the darkness. And staying with this theme of light, let us rejoice and give thanks for those who have shone in word and deed throughout these perilous, quick-changing times. For medical staff and care workers, and for those serving and helping throughout our communities, stretching out their hands in neighbourly love. Lord, we thank you for these glimpses of light in dark places. And finally, help us to, unworthy as we are, in different ways to shine to an aching world. Christ be our light, shine in our hearts, shine through the darkness, shine in our church gathered today. Lord of immeasurable love, be pleased to hear these our prayers. Amen. So go into God's world with love, hope, joy and faith in your hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer, be with you all forevermore. Amen.